Hello, and welcome to You Philosopher. So today we're going to do something a little bit unusual. We're actually going to go back to some material that we were discussing from last time because people seem pretty interested in it. And there's been some interesting conversations and arguments that have been had in the comments section. And I want you all to know I really appreciate that. Uh, as I, I really appreciate it when people give their thoughts, especially when they give the reasons for those particular thoughts, kind of going beyond, well, I just feel this. And, and there have really been some fantastic thoughts that have given me pause and, and make me want to reflect on it. And so today what I want to talk about are five more things that The Last Jedi gets right, or at the very least, are things that people are saying are wrong that really aren't wrong about the film. Let's look at one of the, the major things that people are, are complaining about, which kind of falls in line with that issue, which is this idea that Rey is a Mary Sue. Now, if you don't know what we mean by Mary Sue, this is something that's come up, it's become kind of more popular recently, but it's actually uh, an idea that can be applied without just talking about gender or gender norms. Uh, Mary Sue is today kind of, <clears throat> in our current arguments, something that's used to describe a, a woman who just kind of like magically is all talented. And um, a, a lot of people feel like these Mary Sue characters are just thrown in there to make social justice warriors happy. But notice, by the way, that the Mary Sue character issue is something that some feminists might have an issue with because it's also this idea that a character who's um, perfect, a female character who's just perfect and just kind of meets the authors. He's like, whatever his image of a perfect woman is, that's what we get. Now, this is important to notice that someone doesn't have to be female at this quality. So there's this kind of awkward attempt to call, you know, Marty Stews or something along those lines. But this idea that maybe an author, right, she has a character that she specifically imagines being with or wishes that she was, and that's who, um, that's who they're creating there. So the Star Trek had this concern with Wesley Crusher that in fact that this was actually supposed to be like a little version of the creator Gene Roddenberry. So a lot of people are very, very critical either actually using uh, Mary Sue or saying that, wow, Ray's just really, really overpowered. How is she so overpowered? This doesn't make any sense. She just kind of has every ability. And I'd like to argue that she isn't. And, and let me put this in context, so that she isn't especially when it comes to like kind of everybody else and the way that we deal with this in the Star Wars universe. By that, what I mean is without hearkening back to the to the to the novelizations that explain some of her backstory and how she has the talents that she has she seems to have some abilities that are sensibly like wait how does she know how to do this namely piloting um star fighters uh being able to use the lightsabers and the force with it seems a great deal of talent and uh being a, a pretty good mechanic so that being said, for some of it, I'm just going to kind of go Anakin Skywalker. Now, that may be a little bit unfair because Anakin's the chosen one, etc., etc. But we do know this, right? That someone who is born with the Force, even untrained, like Annie was, right, when he was a little boy, has certain abilities that might come out by virtue of having significant talents with the Force, right? One of those seems to be the ability to fix stuff. So we could just kind of say, okay, well, Ray's ability with uh, machinery is basically like Anakin's ability to make droids. And this is something that's even discussed in episode one. Now, I want to argue that this is ev made even more reasonable within that universe by virtue of the fact that she spent all of her time, basically, on Jakku working with these down ships. 
working with uh, both Imperial and uh, uh, Rebellion starfighters and cruisers and so on and so forth, Jakku was the site of the, la the Empire's last stand, so it's basically a, a graveyard for all of these felled ships that have crashed onto the planet's surface. So she makes her living by going around and working with them Arguably, not only is she figuring out how to take them apart, but there's probably been occasions where she's put them back together in order to, not maybe the ship itself, but pieces of it back together so that she can sell it so that she can survive. In other words, she's been working with this, with this machinery for a while, and again, the Force, it seems, in some, in some Force users, gives them kind of this talent in the same way that it does with Anakin. So, she wouldn't be any more of a Mary Sue in that case than, say, Anakin would. So then the issue of her being such a good pilot seems to get a little bit more traction. How much time has she spent? And if she could do this, why hasn't she left? Well, we know that she hasn't wanted to leave. So that might be part of it. Like what kinds of access that she has had to actually being able to leave the planet, we don't know. But we know that she wants to stay there because she thinks her family is going to come back for her. So the... The issue, though, of her being that good at it and like just being able to kind of get behind the Millennium Falcon and fly it, right, is a good question. One, of course, we have the issue of the Force. Once again, kind of giving people not just um, the ability to work with machinery, but also remember that the Force basically enables people to see into the future a little bit or a lot, depending on how powerful they are. That's how their ability to, to deflect blaster bolts work. I mean, it has to, given the limited application of physics to this universe at all, right, no one can move faster than the speed of light. A blaster bolt would move at the speed of light. Therefore, logic concludes that the reason why they're able to deflect the bolts isn't because they're moving faster than the speed of light, but it's because they're able to put the lightsaber in the way of the blaster bolt before it's shot. Not while it's traveling, but theoretically before it's been shot. So this makes it so she can be a better pilot, and we see this with Anakin as well. And I had that frustration too, but with Anakin, when he's a little boy, able to fly better than all of these other well-trained pilots. But again, we just kind of chalk that up to the Force. Now, again, at least one uh, one of the texts suggests that she spends her that she's also spent a fair amount of time on Jakku studying schematics and doing flights flight sims. Now, depending on how you want to have this argument, some people are going to say that's unfair to bring in. It's unfair to bring in backstories um, that don't actually appear in the movie. And, and okay, fair enough, right? That. I can I can see that criticism. The point then being though is look at all of the other characters. You, you kind of see we just give them these abilities and we don't seem to complain about it as much. One of my favorites and people are going to hate me for saying that, but that's okay, right? Is Han Solo. Han Solo has a whole lot of talents, right? Some of which make a lot of sense for what he's had to deal with and how he's had to survive. But being a general is not one of them. And it's got to be, I would think, a little bit frustrating frustrating, and I don't want to speak out of line here for anyone who is in the service, but a little bit frustrating to see someone just thrown into a generalship in Return of the Jedi whilst he spent most of his time not wanting to be involved, right? This isn't exactly someone who seems like leadership material or having studied a whole lot of uh, tactics, uh, whether, whether in space or on the ground. And so why all of a sudden someone like Han Solo or Lando they, they end up being generals, and this is a little strange because it goes so far that Han, rather than piloting the Millennium Falcon to, to fight the second Death Star, he's on the ground, right, and Lando pilots it. But one would think that if we were using Han's skill set 
to the to the best of it, no one can fly the Falcon better than he can, that he would be the perfect person to have flying in that firefight. So now some of you who are experts at Star Wars might go, well, wait a minute. No, Nick, if you read blah, 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 or if you look at Lando's comics, et cetera, et cetera, they have these abilities because. But then then I'm just going to say, well, then can't we say the same about Rey? That if we look at her backstories in the in the in the novelizations or so on and so forth that we can see, et cetera, et cetera. So if we leave that out, basically what we're base, what we're just saying is, is, yeah, with some regularity, Star Wars already has a history of giving characters abilities and promotions, right, when they're not entirely warranted. Now, that being said, there's one part of her Mary Sue-ishness that I think people are definitely not being entirely fair about, which is her ability to use a lightsaber, right? The fact that she can use the Force so effectively, all right, that maybe gets a little bit of traction, right? Luke seems to struggle with it more, and I think there might be some arguments why... Young Luke, by the way, seems to struggle with it more. And there's, I think, some arguments for why that probably have to do with, like, Luke doesn't really... He's, he tends to be someone who is a... I need to try. I don't know if I can do this. She seems a little bit more confident, so maybe that's why some of these things seem to come to with greater ease to write. But her lightsaber skills, for anyone who's who's watching her fight, are not that impressive. And so there's kind of these arguments that come up. Well, like, she's able to beat Kylo Ren. Well, she's able to beat Kylo Ren because, A, Kylo Ren's been shot, and B, Kylo Ren isn't trying to kill her. Kylo Ren is specifically trying to convert her. He's He thinks that he's supposed to get information from her or bring her to Snoke. Or what he really wants to do is he wants to bring her to his side so that he can have someone to help him defeat Snoke, or at least so it so seems, right? One would think that if his if his straight-up goal was just killing her, he would have done so. But aside from being shot by Chewbacca in The Force Awakens, and then the fact that he's actually holding back a bit, her ability to hold um, her own in that fight makes more sense. And for those of you who know, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> who have been watching these films to the excess that I have, you'll notice that there's a huge discrepancy between the lightsaber abilities and finesse used in episodes one through three, and then in The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi. Part of the fun of the films is seeing how basically um, Ben and Rey are kind of hack and slash. They have not been trained to the same degree and by the same quality of teachers, right? Ben only having Luke to teach him, Luke's skills likely not being nearly as exceptional as, say, like Obi-Wan's or something along those lines, right? He didn't have the same kind of training that he could pass on to Ben and so on and so forth. So they're really just kind of baseball batting each other. And you can see that when you look at, say, the fights with like Dooku and the fights with um, uh, Obi-Wan and so on and so forth. Now, that being said, Ray's also been training with her staff, which has given her um, more ability to do that. And then the the ability to kind of see into the future and let the force guide one's actions also is helping her a lot too. But if you look at The Last Jedi, she is not better than Kylo Ren at using her lightsaber. If you look at the scene where in the, they're in the throne room and they're fighting off this Praetorian guard, right, she is struggling a good deal more kind of one-on-one -on -one with each guard while you see Ren will take on at least two at the same time and generally be doing a better job of it. This idea of the Mary Poppins scene, right, which is something that people really are upset about. This is basically just physics that's happening. Now, those of you who are really good at physics, feel free to fix this for me. But my understanding is basically this. She's in space. She's in a frictionless environment. And so if she pulls on something, it 
acts as it pulling on her in in so far as it's kind of like if you take a rope and you throw it on a uh, around a boulder and you pull on that rope right mm -hmm. if the boulder doesn't move you move right she's not reaching her hand out to fly she's not flying there's no air none of that's happening she reaches her hand out in the same way that someone would reach for a lightsaber or a rock in the star wars universe and pulls on it but because she's not anchored to anything and her mass is much less than that corvette right to, than that than that ship right she's pulled towards it right and it seems a little bit awkward like you know her the cg seems a little bit off but I'm wondering if that's because they're trying to be accurate to some degree. Like, you don't really see her clothes move, but they really shouldn't be moving, other than maybe kind of like that moment where the clothes are being caught in her sudden new momentum. Now, because, again, she's in she's in space. There's no air to, to, to move it or flap it about. Uh, now, that being said, she does have to overcome the velocity of being thrown out of the ship in the first place. And so that, one would think, would take a fair amount of, like, force power uh, equivalent of like lifting an X-wing or something along those lines. But that being said, she's not flying, right? Jedi don't suddenly have a magical ability to fly. That's not what's happening. She's pulling on an object just like any other Jedi would in that scene. Concerns that this is just kind of like um, uh, anti-capitalism. And, and I get that, right? So when we look at the Canto Bite scene, it seems like, oh, well, this is clearly just anti-capitalism, which is ironic because it's Disney. What right do they have? I mean, since they are like clearly our capitalist overlords. Well, notice though that really one way of looking at this is recognizing the fact that different people in the world would see that scene differently as a criticism, but not necessarily as a criticism of capitalism, right? In other words, different times and different um, locations. So like people uh, in Cuba might look at a scene like that and look at it um, if they feel repressed, uh, say especially back say in the 1950s, they might look at it and they might actually see it as kind of, uh, well look at look at our governmental overlords. They're right, our, the, 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 the almost like mili military aristocracy, they get to have everything they want while we're, we're, we're suffering in the 1960s and 1970s with this, with this communism, so on and so forth. Or people in Iran might see something along the lines of that uh, religious elite, they get to have everything that they, but th that they want while other people suffer, so on and so forth. So it, it's really what it seems to be criticizing there is wealth, not necessarily capitalism, right? In, in our country, right, there's arguments about capitalism because capitalism is generally the best means by which to achieve wealth and higher status than other people in our society. But that doesn't necessarily mean that this is a criticism of capitalism nearly so much as it is a criticism of slavery, um, excess, and importantly, and this is really key to the argument that I want to try so we can actually bring some philosophy into this and not just kind of uh, commentary on films, is the issue is one of whether or not one should play both, so play both sides. And I would like to argue that playing both sides is not a capitalistic idea, right? That's to capitalize on something. But to be willing to sell uh, weapons to both sides is not something that I would argue a good capitalist business in the United States would do, right? Capitalism can be very much a force for good under certain circumstances. And just like any other system that can be misused, right, when someone's like, well, I'm just a capitalist, I just go where I want, as in the case with this master codebreaker DJ, that seems to be what's being criticized. Specifically, he's called DJ, at least our understanding is, because he's saying don't join. And it even says so on his hat, don't join. And so 
this issue of people who are willing to play both sides and saying that you shouldn't join a side, you shouldn't pick a side, just kind of take advantage where you can, get away with what you can, you're in it for yourself, I think is part of the broader theme of this film that's actually the criticism. And that's part of why we're probably uncomfortable, right? Um, the broader theme, the broader issue here being that we shouldn't be trying to do things by ourselves, right? And this idea of being a hero who's just going to go out and do whatever the hero wants to do, kind of Han Solo-esque, is uh, heavily criticized in this film, right? That you should pick a side and commit and work with other people and communicate effectively. criticism of Admiral Holdo. People, again, well, this is just for the SJWs, right? Look, just another empowered female character. How did she get there? She sucks as a general. Look what happens when she's in charge, et cetera, et cetera. But if you look at what happens with her, one criticism might be, well, why doesn't she just tell Poe? Why should she, right? She's the admiral, right? She's the commander in charge. She owes Poe absolutely nothing, right? And I would think, and, and it, this isn't something that I really get to speak to, but the little bit and limited understanding that I have of military personnel is, is that you really are supposed to respect your superiors. You're supposed to follow orders unless there's some sort of like clear moral question, right? Like it's nice when people are willing to question like they're Nazi overlords, right? The thing that keeps people alive is being willing to work as a unit and trust your commanders because commanders don't always have the ability or the time to explain all of those orders right at that. And if everyone goes, if everyone went around doing what Poe did, everyone would die. You wouldn't have an effective military force. So when he goes up to her, having just been demoted and basically demands that she tell him what's going on, she's well within her commanding rights to say, I owe you nothing. You need to go to your post and follow orders. And she also has a lot of reason not to trust him at this point. She doesn't know what he's going to do. He's clearly kind of knee-jerk reactionary, and she's got other stuff on her mind. Now, Part of the theme of the film seems to be the willingness to communicate and work with others. And one criticism could be that had she simply talked to him and told him, this whole thing wouldn't have gone down like this in the first place. And that's an interesting concern, but it doesn't make her a bad commander. It makes her a pretty normal commander, right? One who doesn't have time to explain to every single uh, one of her <clears throat> soldiers, here's why we're doing this today, when they're all just at that particular moment trying not to die. Um, another criticism might be thrown her way is like it takes her a long time to realize that she can like turn the ship around and go into hyperspace and destroy this jet dreadnought. Um, my best guess though is because I've been trying to, and this is how like really nerdy I am, I've been trying to figure out the time frame of this and I don't think that they line up between the throne room scene, which seems to take a while, and how long those troop transports are being destroyed. At least if you count off the seconds between um, firing on the transports and how many transports there are. Because if there's only 30 of them, which is what we're told, um, the, the timing between shots is not, it's really just a few seconds at most between each one. Um, they would have all been destroyed in the amount of time that we see from the beginning of that scene to the end of that scene. But then said there's like eight left. So basically what we, what we would need to do is take the number of seconds between shots right? Multiply that by uh, the number of ships that are destroyed. And that's how long it takes uh, Admiral Holdo to realize that she can, you know, uh, turn her ship around and do some damage. And that ends up being like a minute and a half, depending on your count, to three minutes, something along those lines, which in other words, really isn't very long. 
So she's looking on in horror, realize that the whole plan completely fails, and it takes her, she's trying to figure out what to do. And given that time frame, actually acts pretty quickly. Hit one that leads to some good philosophy, which is the question of Luke isn't Luke. That Luke uh, was gonna kill Ben. Okay, number one, let, to have the conversation about Luke not being Luke, we need to let go of the idea that Luke was planning to kill Ben. That wasn't the case. The film's not proposing that. Mark Hamill never would have liked it and or allowed it to happen, which is, and how do I know this? I know this because at least I'm told by Hamill in his interviews, right, that there were things that he didn't think were Lukish that he required that they change, right? And so they kind of came to a happy medium about some stuff. So if he was really, really against it, it would not have happened. And, and I think that Luke trying to kill Ben would have definitely been something that Hamill was not okay with. So that being said, what happens instead? Luke goes in there, he's already not fully trusting Ben. He's, he's concerned, he's seen dark come out in this kid. And so he goes in there maybe to confront him or to kind of do some sort of Jedi espionage. Either which way, he has the opportunity to reach inside the boy using the Force and then is just appalled. And one can only imagine what the dark side must feel like. I mean, just waves of violence, hatred, fear, just like being able to put your hand in a vat full of like murderous, rapey maggots right? And his initial response is to jerk back and to defend himself. And I think from the way it descri they described it, the way Luke himself describes it, is it allows actually for a little bit of foresight on his part. Remember, the force allows people to see into the future. And he describes it as he was going to destroy everything I love. And perhaps Luke actually saw that potential future coming out. So he ignit ignites his lightsaber, not purposefully, but just out of a Jedi defensive maneuver, right? Just out of an, of an instinct, like a violent instinct. And then within a fraction of a second, you see him immediately regret it. Like, oh my God, what was I thinking? And he looks down at his own hand, appalled at what he's gonna do, and then it's too late, right? And Ben is already responding, so on and so forth. So what's really important here is, is the realization, okay, Luke's not trying to kill Ben. So the real question is, and I think Ray t touches on this, and we might even misunderstand her a bit, why doesn't he go after Ben? Why doesn't he try and convert Ben after that, right? In other words, she she says to him, you, you know, your mistake was believing that he's just gone down this path, that he's non-savable, so on and so forth. So the reason for this seems to me to be very, very Luke Skywalker-ish. And people go, keep saying, well, no, Luke's willing to save everybody no matter what, so on and so forth. He wasn't responsible for his father falling to the dark side. It's hard for Luke not to feel a lot like that when it comes to Ben. And Luke not only is kind of whiny like his dad, but he's also, again, someone that Yoda has to tell, do or do not, there is no try. In essence, stop talking about what you can't do, right? That is why you fail. Luke's kind of a little bit, and forgive me for this because I love Luke, but has a tendency to be a bit of a giver-upper and to not always listen, right? He doesn't always pay attention to people like Yoda, tell him, pass on what you have learned, right? He goes off to Bespin without having finished his training, so on and so forth. And my guess is, is that we're actually, what we actually see happen is, is Luke is completely horrified that not only did he lose Ben, but presumably he lost others, right? Other students were taken with Ben and the rest were killed. So, right, so he's lost a few students to the dark side. The rest of these innocents are murdered, all because Luke 
from his perspective, goes and does something horrible. He sees himself fail. And this breaks him. And he then goes, again, this is my best guess at this point, to try and find the Jedi Temple, probably looking for answers. And guess what? Doesn't really find any. So then he realizes through all of this, how profoundly arrogant he's been. And he's been arrogant in trying to create a new Jedi Order. He's been arrogant in thinking that he can train these Jedi. He's been arrogant in his presumptions about Ben. And he sees that same flaw in the Jedi, what he calls hubris, right? The arrogance of pride. And that the Jedi, if you think about it, they do a whole lot of really arrogant things going around, basically having their own government, being the, the keepers of justice in the galaxy, being basically willing to take other people's children. And though he doesn't articulate all of this, this arrogance is a real worry for him. And so he basically gives up. Now this leads to a whole lot of other issues as to whether or not he actually sees light in Kylo or not, so on and so forth. I like the idea of it not really being there. And what would interest me, and what I will certainly give, to me seems to be the least Luke Skywalker moment is when Kylo says to him, are you here to forgive me, right? And Luke's like, no, right? And that's, oh, wow, that does seem a little bit unlukish. But then, then Luke also apologizes. So what this leads to, and this merits, I think, some philosophical discussion, perhaps in the comments or in a later uh, episode, is the nature of forgiveness. What does it take, what does one need to do to be forgiven? And it seems that Luke is saying, Ben, you haven't reached what you need to be forgiven. Maybe that's a Luke Skywalker thing to do, maybe it's not. I look forward to hearing your thoughts. Have a wonderful week.